Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Symmetry. It's my real pleasure today to welcome back Tom Wright from the Brookings Institution. This for episode 12 of the NOW series, uh, focused on Europe, where to from here. A lot has been going on in Europe these days, uh, and I wanted to look at a number of aspects of European politics. First, I wanted to review with Tom uh, the EU-level politics, uh, uh, particularly as a result of the uh, EU elections that occurs once every five years. Then I wanted to look uh, uh, with Tom and discuss uh, the national politics going on in Europe, particularly in the UK, uh, but also in um, uh, Italy and France and Germany. Uh, and finally, I wanted to understand uh, the implications of the, the examination of nationalist politics in the countries where I just mentioned in the transatlantic relationship. So let me uh, welcome Tom back into the studio and let's get on with a discussion of Europe and where does it go from here. Well, it's a real pleasure then to welcome back into the studio, in quotation marks here, uh, Tom Wright from the Brookings Institution. Tom, are you there? Yes, Alan. It's great to be with you. Great. So let's let's turn to uh, European politics and let's look first, if we can, at kind of the EU level. Uh, we had a very recent election. It's every five years. And for the first time in the history of the EU, the center-right and the center-left political groups in the Parliament, which are represent over 750 um, uh, MEPs, uh, they they lost the, their combined majority in the face of strengthened green and populist and nationalist forces. Uh, what does this tell us about uh, European popular sentiment these days, Tom? Well, it was I think it was an interesting election, Alan. You know, it was really the first election that was Europe wide in terms of the debate and discussion. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in previous uh, election cycles, you'd often hear the, the great and the good lament that there was, uh, you know, 20-something separate national elections, but no common European election. Well, this time there was a common European election. And, uh, you know, the result, I think, was a bit mixed. But my main takeaway was that the Populist nationalists are here to stay, but they obviously didn't win. They didn't, you know, they did well in certain areas, less well in others, but they're in a minority. Um, and the center um, has become more fragmented. And so mm -hmm. you don't just have the center right and center left anymore. You have the Greens, you have other uh, sort of parties and forces. Um, and of course, the, the coalition forming process now will be fairly complicated with different uh, groups. Um, but I think it was uh, not as bad as some predicted um, for the center, but that should not uh, cloud the fact that I think it's very difficult times for centrists in European politics, not just because of the election, but for other reasons too. Um, would one say, because there seems to be a debate as to whether the Greens are there because of the environment or because they 
you know, are not populist uh, and or nationalists and therefore uh, are more appealing to more moderate forces in in Europe. I mean, how do you see this sudden, uh, not sudden, but emergence of the Greens? Well, the Greens emergence really coincides with the decline of the old sort of center left, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. the SPD in Germany in particular, but also others. And I think that tells us something, you know, it tells us that the Greens are, are not seen as sort of discredited by the financial crisis or by governance okay. in a way that um, the Social Democrats might be perceived to be. Um, and it's a way of sort of for for more sort of liberal voters to register some concern about what hap what's happening and also to register their um, you know, there are strong views on climate change and the need for the government to do more uh, to tackle that. Um, but having said all that, you know, there are um, a, a few sort of things we don't know. We don't know, for instance, how popular the green policies would be when they are implemented. Um, you know, Macron's climate change policies ended up sparking the Yellow Vest uh, protests. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw in Australia, on the other side of the world, you know, the Labour Party losing in part because they were explicit about their climate policies uh, and maybe some other policies also. Um, so that's an unknown, um, you know, how durable and deeply rooted is some of that support. And then, of course, the Greens are different from the centre-left in that they don't have that sort of, you know, base of working class union support that the old centre-left would have had. So. Mm -hmm. So I think they are trying and they are benefiting in some way from being a replacement for uh, for centre-left, but whether or not that endures, I think it, it, we don't know enough yet. Okay. Um, you know, obviously, if you look at some of the segments, uh, most particularly the UK, you get this enormous, in quotes, significant block of Brexit votes, right? I mean, what the, what do they do and how do they impact on the European uh, Parliament itself? Well, the, I mean, the Brexit party yeah. uh, is, I guess, the largest individual party outside of, you know, not including the party groupings, obviously. But if you take each national party, the Brexit party is more seats than any of them, I think, including the CDU. Um, because it swept uh, a lot of the, a lot of the seats in the UK. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it has a huge impact because um, obviously they may be out of the EU soon. In which case, uh, they'll all lose their seats automatically. They'll be reallocated. Um, but uh, I think that you know what it really symbolised and what Farage's success symbolised was that the Conservative Party voters wanted to send a message to their Conservative Party leaders um, that they need to exit the EU as soon as is possible and um, that they're very upset after having missed the previous uh, deadline. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, in a way, it was a very cheap message for them to send because it wasn't a national election. It didn't have sort of governance consequences in terms of who made up the government. So it was a way, you know, I, I think... I think the Conservatives got about, you know, 10 or less than 10% of the seats or of the votes that came in fifth. Um, so just what basically happened was that a lot of the Conservative voters 
just moved to the Brexit party to register that dissent. And I think the message was received loud and clear um, that, uh, you know, the, the Conservatives, I think, are going to respond to Theresa May's resignation by electing someone, probably Boris Johnson, who is determined to leave on October 31st, partly because they are so worried, you know, that what Farage accomplished at the EU elections, he may seek to repeat in the national election. Well, let's stick with that, but look more at the national level for a moment. And I mean, it uh, here uh, with respect to the UK, I mean, I presume uh, you can correct me that it looks like, you know, uh, Boris Johnson is likely to take leadership of the Conservative Party and as a result, at least uh, immediately becoming um, head of government. But I mean, what, what is there any prospect uh, then? Uh, I mean, he seems to have toned down some of his uh, no deal Brexit perspective. But where does that leave him, assuming he does become leader? In a very problematic position, I think. I mean, I think, you know, I think Johnson is, um, you know, he's trying to lay down a hard line, partly because he wants to win um, the leadership, partly because if he does win the leadership, he's worried about the threat from the Brexit party, partly because he would like to leave the EU. Um, but he still really has no plan, you know. So if he if he comes in, and he seeks to renegotiate the deal and he does not get concessions and there's no sign that he will get meaningful concessions on the backstop or other issues, then if he tries to go for no deal unless he prorogues Parliament, essentially shutting Parliament down, um, you know, Parliament is likely to try to block that from happening, um, in which case, what does he do at that point? Um, and mm -hmm. that's the big sort of question no one knows the answer to, including him. Um, you know, he could go for a referendum that would run the risk of no Brexit. Uh, it's unlikely he'd want to do that. He could go for a general election, but unless he's dealt with the Brexit party, it's likely that he won't go for that. So, um, so we're in sort of a gridlock um, style situation. Um, he, he could try to change the position on the backstop by having it only apply to Northern Ireland. But in that event, he loses his majority and the DUP would probably vote no confidence in him. Mm -hmm. So it's a uh, I think he's in a real, uh, you know, he's in, he's in a difficult situation. Um, possibly what he could do is to try to resell Theresa May's deal with, with, with more <laughs> charisma and persuasion. Um, and, you know, that might work. Um, but even that, I think. You know, uh, I mean, that's more same old, same old in terms of Theresa May's approach. And uh, he may he may find himself, you know, coming in for some severe criticism um, quickly. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he can see to the point of, um, you know, of maybe early October. But after that, he just has these very difficult choices with, with no good options from his perspective. Yeah. I mean, and do you I mean, just a quick aside on this. Is it realistic to believe that a British politician becomes leader, prorogues Parliament in order to get an outcome? That would just strike me as so undemocratic. Yeah, I think it's very unlikely. I think it's legally possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, proroguing Parliament is pretty common for technical reasons. Right. You know, it happens all the time just as a bureaucratic measure. It's never, uh, I think, once or twice it's been used in history for political gain, 
it's never been used on an issue of this consequence or for this long. Okay. So I think it will be very, very unlikely that it would happen. I mean, if you if you were to do that, firstly, it would seem to be anti-democratic. You know, you're basically yes. closing Parliament. Yeah. It would bring to the open this question of parliamentary sovereignty versus popular democracy, mm-hmm. which has been simmering beneath the surface um, uh, for some time. So, and, and it would run the risk of, you know, enormous protests. And imagine, I mean, Rory Sturt the other day, one of the challengers to Boris Johnson said that if he did that, he said he would go across the river and set up a different parliament, you know, to meet in session, you know, so... Um, <laughs> So that's a, you know that that's a, maybe a, a you know just a, a bit of a gimmick, but it is a sign of how the politics could shift. And then of course you have the Speaker of the House, John Burkow, who we had here recently at Brookings. Mm-hmm. Basically, he would not allow Parliament to be written out, and so one could expect him to be very active as well. Okay, is there any? I mean, as a final thought on the on on Brexit in the UK, is there any real prospect that Boris Johnson is? Uh, going to persuade European leaders, Macron and um, Angela Merkel at all, to actually change the nature of the, of the deal that they had uh, concluded with uh, Theresa May? I think it's very unlikely. Uh, I think they would need to have the Irish government's consent for right. anything to be, um, to be saleable, you know, to be sellable and um, I don't think they're going to get it because um, the Irish government wants some guarantees, um, you know, that are as solid as the backstop. So there would need to be a real solid proposal, not some vague commitment to technology and no such proposal exists. So, right. uh, so you know, one can imagine a few different maybe ways of compromise, but I think they're all very remote at this point. So I, I think... Um, yeah, I think renegotiation seems to be very, very remote. And, you know, one thing you hear from EU officials is why would we reward the, the you know, the why would we punish Theresa May, who's been constructive by not giving her additional concessions at the very end, and then give them to people who've been misrepresenting the deal all along, mm-hmm. what they have been saying. So mm-hmm. I don't think there's mood really to have, um, you know, major compromises. Okay. Uh, so, so let's continue kind of in this vein with respect to the nationalist or populist uh, politics. Um, the Italian and the League, which Matteo Salvini, seem to have quite a degree of popularity. What, what's the prospect here uh, of uh, Italy, in effect, creating a crisis uh, with respect to, you know, kind of physical... Um, uh, conditions, Italian spending in particular, they've argued uh, about the um, involvement or the uh, progress of a universal basic income, etc., all of which is very likely to bust the budget uh, and and bring the EU to some discussion with them. What, what What's the prospect with uh, Salvini and the EU? Um, I think it's we're not quite there yet, but we may be getting there. Um, you know, this brings to mind what happened with Greece in 2015 when Alexis Cyprus was elected with Theresa, and they directly challenged Germany 
ripped up the memorandum of understanding mm-hmm. and insisted on their own terms. And Germany, of course, and the EU called their bluff. And uh, by June, Greece was on its way out of the Eurozone and there was a crisis and it was averted uh, with American involvement. Um, what's different about Italy is size. You know, Italy is bigger. And um, I think Salvini knows that. He knows that he has more leverage because Italy probably is too big to fail um, in a way that Greece in 2015 was not or certainly was perceived not to be. Um, so I think your your scenario is correct that, you know, if Italy creates, if there's a crisis, it won't be because Italy says it wants to leave. It will be because Italy does certain things that the Germans believe uh, violate the spirit, if not the letter, maybe even the letter of the Eurozone agreement. And then the Italians basically say, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Now, the, the newest thing they've been doing are these sort of parallel currency notes, you know, which are, are, are pretty technical and, and for sort of government workers and for specific things. Um, you know, there's so many ease, I think, in Germany at that. Um, but this could, you know, may not be a Rubicon itself, but it could grow into one uh, over time. Um, I think it's unlikely to come to a four until the economic situation, you know, deteriorates further. Um, but there are signs now of a real sort of slowdown in the eurozone, so that could come sooner than we think. Okay, and, and sorry, are, are are the Italians in effect creating a second currency uh, if a crisis emerges between themselves and the European and the eurozone? Well, they deny they're doing that. They say that they're they're issuing sort of these IOUs, right? Um, just as a technical issue, uh, in, in terms of you know paying to the servants, um, that it, it's not a parallel currency. Um, but the German concern uh, is that it may become one. I see. So they, if, if, if push comes to shove, they may open. They may accept, or the government would accept it as legal tender. And you know, allowing people to use these uh, notes as a way of uh, dealing with uh, a crisis in the euro itself. Uh, the, the, that's not what they're saying now, but yes, that will be a concern about the scenario. Yeah. Okay. Oh boy. Um, the the you know overall the the rise of nationalism and populism. What do you see? Uh, uh, Tom is really dr- driving it. It appears to, you know, while it's fair to say, you know, it just ha- it hasn't overwhelmed, uh, as we saw, as you mentioned, um, uh, the EU level elections, nevertheless, significant pro- um, progress of nationalist forces in almost all the countries in Europe. What's, what's driving this? I think it's a variety of factors, but I think two I think are particularly important. One is in the eurozone that the scope for political policy choice has been taken away. Really, you know, you think about the eurozone constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if a center left party wanted to spend more and you know tax more and spend more, they probably couldn't do it under the existing eurozone rules. They certainly couldn't borrow to invest. To have a stimulus, so um, they're sort of bound into the same economic, you know, agreements and limits um, mm-hmm. that all other governments are. So uh, 
you know, center left comes in, they behave more like the center right than they do with, say, the more radical left. And uh, that, I think, has been noticed by voters. And so when they're frustrated and want change, they tend now to vote for, um, you know, they tend to vote for uh, the, the more radical alternatives to try to get a better prospect of change. Then the second issue, of course, is immigration and the way that's been used mm-hmm. uh, uh, by particularly the right-wing populists in a very sort of, you know, fearful way um, that seems to have uh, been quite effective in terms of building up uh, those uh, movements, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and that, I think, is re- regrettable, uh, but it, it does seem to be one of the things that, you know, populist nationalists are taking advantage of. Okay. Um, you know, kind of at the EU level, one of the issues that, because you have now a uh, change in, in leadership um, and going on at the commission level, so, you know, one of the questions that's arisen is, Chancellor Merkel's continued support for this uh, gentleman, Manfred uh, Weber, for uh, president uh, and the, a reaction in which many individuals, many commentators in Europe think he's not appropriate that, you know, while he's been involved in parliament, um, uh, the European parliament, he has no kind of executive experience. Uh, why have the Germans pushed this line and continue, at least seemingly, to push this line for uh, his choice? Yeah, I think the way uh, his supporters would describe it, you know, he's the representative and was on the the special sort of list for the EPP, and they won the elections because they're the largest Right. Parliamentary grouping and, you know, a sort of recognition of the democratic nature of the parliamentary elections means, um, you know, means uh, making him, you know, president. So uh, because he can be said to have won. Um, the the other point of view, though, is that, um, you know, is that they don't have a majority, um, that people weren't really voting on that basis, that he doesn't really connect with people and actually, you know, they, they're structurally the largest party but didn't do as well as they right. have done before um, and that there needs to be some fresh thinking. Um, basically, the Merkel's government is on the first side of that and the French and others are on the other side of that. And so there's a lot of jockeying for a position now um, uh, with uh, uh, some people like President Macron making the argument for other choices for those positions. Yeah, I take it, you know, some of the expressed concern is that, you know, exactly when you need more creative kind of European Commission thinking, the choice that the Germans are pre- presenting really you know, run counter to, uh, to that, right? Yes. Yeah, and and some you know some of the alternative. I mean, uh, Margaret Bethsager, the you know the uh, commissioner for competition, who's been very high profile. Yes, she's been mentioned for this. Um, there is a feeling amongst a lot of people that um, you know it would be excellent to have a, the first female president of the commission. Um, so she would you know she would um, uh, bring that to the table as well. Um, so there are lots of different factors, I think, um, going on. Um, but uh, 
but I don't think it will be Mr. Weber at the end. Oh, you do not think he'll be able to survive some of the criticisms? Well, I think just the fact that Macron is so adamantly opposed mm -hmm. um, makes it unlikely. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, let, let's look one last piece of this uh, nationalist populist uh, puzzle. Uh, you've given us some of the drivers uh, for it in Europe, but I wanted uh, you to comment on the rise to political prominence and the rise, in fact, to the presidency of Slovakia by this uh, lady, uh, Susanna Kaputova, right? Um, yeah. And, and does this signal kind of a, at least some elements of a reaction against um, the kind of, you know, more dramatic populism of, let's say, uh, Salvini or obviously the nationalism in, in the EU and, of course, Marine Le Pen in France. Yes, I, I think it does. Um, you know, she succeeded, uh, I think, was it in late April? Um, mm -hmm. Yes. On her election. And I think it, the main sort of message from her victory was that uh, we often describe Central and Eastern Europe in broad brushstrokes as having, you know, been uh, won by the populist nationalists. And, of course, that's not the case. In, in most Central and Eastern European countries, there is uh, great contestation uh, between more liberal forces and the populists. Um, uh, in, in Hungary is obviously on one side of the spectrum uh, with um, Orban having sort of consolidated control and there not being much of a democratic liberal opposition movement to speak of. Right. But even somewhere like Poland, you know, it's much more evenly divided and one could easily see um, centrists and liberal forces winning in Poland next time. Um, her, her victory, I think, was, you know, one of the first ones for, uh, um, you know, for liberal forces and I think was, was you know, sort of seized upon as, um, you know, as, as a, a sign that this is not over um, yet. Okay. So, so there's some heart to be taken from, I mean, admittedly, Slovakia is one small piece of the European puzzle, but that there's some more positive sense of politics in Europe as a result of her um, election? Yes, and I think people are also sort of looking to her success in terms of a model to follow, like what are the issues, you know, whether it's corruption or other issues um, that, uh, you know, that worked for her and what that sort of soft underbelly of the sort of nationalist movement, you know, uh, you, you know, may be sort of used as a political issue um, by, by liberal and centrist. Okay, let's um, close it off here by, by throwing the last question really more on the <clears throat> the transatlantic side. And here I, I want to reference a piece by Alina Polyakova and uh, Benjamin Haddad in uh, Foreign Affairs called uh, Europe Alone, very recent piece. Uh, they suggest in that article that Europe needs to establish a more autonomous defense policy. Uh, they write, in the long run, a strong continent that is able to defend the interests and fight its own battles will benefit Washington more than a divided and weak one. I, it, I mean, it sounds good. I guess the question I have for you, Tom, is 
what appears to be missing from their analysis is the fragmentation itself and the more extreme politics in Europe. Is that even, you know, their view even possible that Europe is likely to go it alone in the in the transatlantic relationship? Well, I think they, it was a very interesting piece. I think they believe that this will be a long road, but I that see. it's worth starting on and that it won't happen overnight. Um, but I guess I would be a little skeptical that it would be possible. I mean, I think it would be good for Europe. I support sort of greater EU capabilities in this area. Sure. Uh, I think their basic point that if those capabilities mean that European governments make up their own mind and that doesn't always align with Washington, that that's not just a bad thing. I think that's basically correct, you know, and that, uh, you know, Europe... Uh, EU is democracy filled with sort of democratic outward looking leaders and you know there won't always be agreement but um the the disagreement will be will be quite small in comparison to the disagreement with other countries mm-hmm. you know maybe bigger differences with um but having said all that you know I think uh th- there's not much sign I think that Europe will get you know enough capability to be truly autonomous from america and i think you know we need to do more of both you know to have more u.s engagement and uh, more european capability and that those two things go hand in hand i see and do you do you sense i mean that a, a washington uh, either in a second trump term or uh, or a new uh, president Ha, would have uh, real enthusiasm for that as opposed to simply rhetorical enthusiasm for it? Um, I think it's... I, I would hope that the next president, if it is somebody different than Trump, mm-hmm. would continue to make the point on spending but would de-emphasize it maybe in favor of tangible cooperation and shared interests. You uh-huh. know, I think what we really need to do is to look toward shared cooperation on everything from technology and big data issues to Chinese mercantilism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to um, to new types of, you know, security threats, such as political interference. Um, so we need to really build out um, and have a positive agenda, which we don't have at the moment. And I, I think the extra sort of spending and strategic autonomy is a, is a part of that and will come up. But, you know, too often this debate, I think, devolves into theology <laughs> and, you know, uh, and, and sort of principle. Um, and, and, and folks don't agree when it is framed that way. Whereas I think, you know, we have a series of very major practical problems facing us. And that's, I think, where the priority should be. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Tom, for uh, taking some time to, to look at Great, your... Thank you, Alan. And uh, you keep well and uh, hope to speak to you again. Thank you, Alan. I look forward to that. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.